coming into the hall this morning. It's a very clear sense for me of the way this this place of practice of engagement coming from a somewhat blustery and stormy morning outside into the the calm, the steadiness that's here. It's rather lovely and this time, this period of practice, it's really a precious opportunity for the for the deepening of what is most important, what is most transformative through this practice that we engage in and the different forms and expressions. And I'd like to just reflect a little this morning on some of the elements of what supports the deepening of the practice, allowing the the potential that is here for transformative awakening of heart, of mind, of of our very lives. To understand at one level with the practice what we're doing is engaging with the habits and the tendencies and the patterns that have become solidified or established in us as comfortable and familiar ways of navigating the world and yet which do not necessarily lead to what it is we're most interested in, do not always bring us to the sense of deep inner peace and freedom that we perhaps intuit and understand that we know at some level is possible for us. And so this this process of practicing involves holding that sense of our aspiration, that sense of our possibility, our potential. Holding it lightly and yet clearly in the centre of what we're engaged in. The Buddha spoke of this practice as the path to the deathless. He said, the heedless live as if they are already dead. This invitation to make each moment and to make our life an expression of its potential for being awake. This is something I think that stirs us, perhaps, that touches us. And whether we frame that in terms of the awakenings of insight, or equally of the awakenings of the heart of the Brahma-viharas. This sense of awakening, I think, can bring from us, if we, if we attend to it, if we, if we rem- remember to return to it, a, a sense of commitment, of enthusiasm, to, to really practice wholeheartedly. And it's always striking for me reading and reflecting on the, the records we have of the Buddha's teaching, what he himself said of the practice and the path, 
how often the images that he used are quite sort of fierce and warrior-like, martial images of sort of battle. And uh, one of the ones that sort of stays with me, you're probably familiar with it, you know, to, to, to tame, to transform the mind and heart, he said. It's like doing battle with a thousand warriors on a thousand battlefields a thousand times. And perhaps we have a sense when we hear that, perhaps we have our sense before hearing that of, oh gosh, okay, that sounds like it's going to be quite tough work. And that sense of, of battle that we sometimes bring to practice, it's, it's true, we really need this. But for many of us as Westerners, our conditioning is already quite strongly towards our tendency and our patterning is already pushing us towards a kind of taking on what we are engaged in, in a, with a sense of, of battle, of conflict, of having to struggle against or struggle with. And it easily leads to pushing too hard, coming out of some idea that perhaps we're not good enough, some tendency towards self-judgment or negativity. And it's so important to recognize this, to see if there's some way in which we're measuring our practice, trying to succeed, trying to perform in some way that has a comparative element where we look at ourselves and I'm better or worse than I was, or better or worse than someone else, better or worse than some <coughs> idea I have about or some image I have about how the practice should be. The kind of effort that comes from that measuring and that comparison and the often underlying judgment or fear of being found wanting in some way, that doesn't generally serve the, the true, the authentic deepening of practice. So we need to look and see what's actually important for our own finding of balance. Practice deepens when we come into balance. The middle path, as the Buddha spoke of it, is always about finding balance. And so sometimes we're asked to make more effort. Sometimes we're asked to look at what really allows that effort to be fruitful. And to come from a a real caring, a real kindliness, a real sense of this is for the well-being of my heart and mind and body. This is for the welfare of my life and the welfare of all that lives. Coming back to remembering that as the framework for our engagement, I think allows there to be a wholehearted engagement, a wholeheartedness about the way we practice. But without the kind of pushing, without the comparing, without the judging and the measuring that we so often find ourselves engaged in. So one of the things that's kind of lovely about a solitary retreat is that there isn't so much the compulsion to have to stay within a framework, and yet there is the support of that framework. So to 
to practice wholeheartedly here is really to see the framework as not the schedule of the day, but the wholeness of the retreat, that there is this opportunity to give yourself completely to just what's here. What tends to happen when we push too hard is that we then kind of, at some point, having pushed hard, give up or back off and kind of think, okay, I've been working hard, now it's time to have a bit of a break, to have a bit of a holiday, for passing a holiday. That's one of my teachers used to call it, where I think, I've done enough. And that sense of doing in the I, that I'm doing it, and then I've done enough of it. We can notice that. It often arises around when we're, when we're kind of pushing in a way that we're trying to measure, we're trying to succeed according to something that we can quantify, like for how long I've sat. Now, I can remember in retreats past years, sitting in the hall and feeling that sense of, yeah, really wanting to be here. And then noticing that there's a slight sense of competitiveness with someone else who's still here as well. Been there for a long time and you're kind of wondering, okay, so who's going to stay the longest? And those little storylines we start to maybe tell ourselves about doing really well or not. You know, fundamentally we can't measure our practice according to the what happens in the experience. And there's a lovely... There's a lovely quote from Ajahn Chah that speaks to this. He says, someone asked him how long one should sit for. And he says, you know, some people think that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. But I have seen chickens sit on their eggs for days. Wisdom comes from being mindful in all postures. Your practice should begin as soon as you awaken in the morning and continue until you fall asleep. Don't be concerned about how long you can sit. What's important is only that you keep watchful, that you keep practicing, whether you're walking or sitting or going to the bathroom. Each person has their own natural pace. Some of you will die at 40. Probably not too many of us. There's only a few, probably less than 40, but... Perhaps he was talking to a younger crowd. Some of you will die at 40, some at age 65, and some at age 90. So too, your practice will not be identical. Don't think or worry about this. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. This piece, very well known, but I think some of the most beautiful and succinct instructions for practice ever. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So this invitation to just bring ourselves wholeheartedly into the engagement with practice, the cultivation of mindfulness, of heartfulness, of calm, clarity, kindness. And as we do this, 
what happens, of course, is that we start to encounter our patterns, our tendencies. To be really willing to see that, to not be disappointed when they show up, to not take this as some evidence of failure or lack of skillful practice. It's natural and actually ultimately helpful that we encounter our patterns, our habits, our tendencies. What's useful is to be able to say, oh yes, look, this is what happens here. This is how it plays out for me. You know, I know that um, when I go on a retreat, I'm always drawn to put extra sugar in my tea. Now, the fact that I know about it doesn't stop it happening. It happens for sure. The, the sense of, oh, just a little bit of extra sweetness, just a little bit of extra something yummy, you know. And it's interesting just to see how deep and how strong that pull is to have a little bit of comfort or to inject a little bit of something sort of pleasurable into what might otherwise be actually a, quite a fine cup of tea or quite a okay experience or period of time. To, to notice that our patterns and our habits and our tendencies arise here in order to be seen. And the fact that we can see them is really, really helpful. The seeing of them is what allows us to begin to deepen, to not be carried so fully by them, and yet also not to reject or to judge them. Uh, a good friend and practitioner of many years was uh, sitting at, uh, actually at the old guy house once. Uh, we were together and with her partner also. And I remember her speaking at the end of the retreat about this strange thing that started to happen. She said, you know, it was in the context of a month-long retreat like this. And uh, she said she noticed at a certain point she'd just be drawn to walk outside and go stand by where the washing was hanging on the line. It was a summer retreat, so not so much washing on the line in November generally. But she would go and she said, I found myself standing out there. I wondered why it was. And then she said, and then I realized I was actually being drawn to go and stand near my husband's underwear, which she recognized hanging on the line. But she hadn't actually quite noticed initially that she'd seen it there. She just something in her subliminally been drawn to the comfort of being close to her husband's underwear. And it was kind of just really lovely, that sense, without any sense of embarrassment, in fact, even some delight. Oh, look. See, as human beings, how we're drawn in these ways. And then we notice, okay, here's the draw, here's that pull. So maybe I don't, I certainly don't have to judge that I'm pulled in that way. Once I see it, it's like, oh, what is it we're drawn to? Actually, we're drawn towards that which gives us deeper comfort. We tend to initially settle for more that surface soothing of the familiar or the sweet. And it's okay. To notice that. We don't have to be somehow ultimate ascetic practitioners rejecting all comfort. And I've sometimes thought that if anyone, you know, if you ever have trouble with drowsiness, there's two ways to deal with it that are, you know, quite foolproof. Sort of basically take off almost everything you're wearing and go sit outside and you won't fall asleep. Just go out in really light clothing. Or take away your cushion and your chair and your mat. And if you're really uncomfortable, you won't fall asleep. It's, it's for sure. And you can hear that, that, oh yeah, there might be something useful in playing with an edge there, but we're not suggesting, and I'm not suggesting, that we somehow need to create that kind of situation to deepen practice. And yet something about playing with that territory 
exploring that territory is actually where it comes. So not some idea of, of what it should look like, but seeing what if I just make the intention that I won't add any sugar to my tea today. That's me. Now, whatever you do might be something different. Just those little things. Just say, let me just put that one down because that's not really doing me any harm and it's certainly probably actually good for me. And just saying, what happens when I do that? What does that bring me in contact with? And if we notice that our tendency is to sort of wander down to the notice board or as we go from the hall, that we regularly stop and just have a look. And you know, just in case there's some new notices since the 45 minutes before when we came past it the last time. And we just sort of, and it's kind of like, just take a moment, oh, what is it, sort of just check out, oh yeah, I've got an interview in two days. Just that kind of feeling of, oh nice, yeah, looking forward to speaking with that person. Or is there a note for me? Maybe someone's, you know, made, written. But, but we actually looked an hour ago, or two hours ago, and it's not that important to find out every two hours, is there something new up there. But seeing those ways, we just kind of provide a little, it's almost an unintentional escape route from being engaged. So, of course, noticing that, including it, then brings it into the practice. Oh, what's going on there? Can we feel that way in which there's so much the urge, the pull towards something sort of familiar, something comforting, something distracting, something just to take me out of the, the directness and the fullness of what's going on. The way our minds tend to move towards the future, to come up with, to suddenly remember those important things that need to be figured out and attended to. Just as we start to get quiet, suddenly it pops into the mind. Oh gosh, that's right, I need to sort out that business thing that has to be fixed before I go home. Or something like that comes into the mind. And being willing to just say no. I don't need to pick up, I don't need to take on those extra little things. That, that, that just getting to know the way the mind finds a seemingly good or legitimate or even important thing that it needs to be busy with now. And just coming back into the immediacy of your practice, the immediacy of your intention. You know, the the Buddha was once asked by someone who came to visit, why are your followers so radiant? How can it be that they are like this? And he said, you know, they are radiant because they do not dwell upon the past. They do not grasp after, they do not hanker after the future. He said, those who grasp after, the, sorry, those who dwell upon the past or grasp after the future, they dry up and wither like green reeds cut down in the midday sun. And that sense of really coming into the immediacy of, of your life, to practice just for here, just for now, just for what's possible in this moment. And let go of whatever this might bring in the future. Somehow there's a balance to be found between that sense of aspiration, that sense of vision, 
and directionality, which is crucial, essential. And just keeping it immediate. Just keeping it to now, to this, and to what's possible right here. So there's this invitation to, to just surrender to your practice. To say this engagement, this opportunity that I have here, for now this is what I give everything to. And what comes after this will be taken care of then. To really contemplate the tendency of the mind to reach out for and to push away, to grasp hold of, and to reject. To see how in so many ways this expresses itself. And in the practice how much energy can sometimes go into that evaluating and assessing of the experience and of the outcomes. Seeking for one, hoping to avoid another. this fundamental dimension of what happens in practice. So we engage and we orient towards the field of cultivation that we're developing and yet at the same time so often this sort of track running in the background, the measuring, the evaluating, the approving or the disapproving be really clear in oneself that we are free here to put that down, to abandon that urge to evaluate, to assess, to see how we tend to use the practice to somehow affirm or establish or maintain some sense of who I am some sense of value or validity or okayness to create or maintain some sense of spiritual identity as to who I am according to or defined by what happens or what I can make happen in my practice. And when that begins to establish itself as a sort of activity going on in the mind and heart while we're engaged in our retreat, very easily, slowly, 
not always perceptibly, but very easily it can be that the practice is slowly pulled into an expression of a, a simply more subtle form of materialism, of gain and avoidance, seeking to establish an identity, or seeking to avoid being located in a self-image that we do not wish to be, to do with success or failure, to do with being good or, or not good enough. The practice isn't for that. It's not a simply more skillful basis for establishing that we're okay. And so far as it becomes about that, the energy that we can give to the practice gets slowly drawn in and subverted. So it's really important, again, just to not to judge when we notice that, not to be upset if we notice it, but to see, okay, that's not really the motivation that we want to establish our practice on. So there's a, a kind of a, a clarifying and a purifying of the motivation that takes place. That's not to do with what we, perhaps on the surface level, would describe as what we're here for. Because I don't think it's news to any of you that we're not here to somehow create some grand version of a spiritual self. But to see nonetheless the subtle unconscious pulls that play out that form of, of seeking, of craving, of grasping. To notice also how in practice, easily after a little while, and all of you have been here at least a week now, some of you longer than that, noticing what happens for us when we start to get more established. We could say a little comfortable sometimes. We've moved through the initial wave of sort of transition and hindrances that often come with it. There's naturally a deepening sense of calm, of steadiness, of flow in the practice. And sometimes we can recognize a, just a kind of a, a quiet, but nonetheless significant sense of, oh, okay, this is nice here now. Yeah, this feels good. I like it. It works. I think I'll kind of hang out a little bit. Just enjoy the ride. The way in which we can get a little complacent. To not underestimate, again, that, that pull towards ease and comfort at a surface level. That sometimes we just feel ourselves settling into. You know, the great aspirations we might come with. We need to come back to them and remember what it is that our heart is most deeply interested in. Because ultimately, getting comfortable doesn't do it for us. We know that. But to be interested, to see when that becomes what we engage in. 
and we can reflect on you know the preciousness of this opportunity to be here to practice the preciousness preciousness of our human birth the buddha spoke of <coughs> this remarkable balance of both pleasure and pain of challenges and also resources that we have as human beings. The preciousness of this silence and stillness here. So potent, so powerful to be together in this way. And what is it to really engage with solitude while we're here on retreat? Of course, the support and the real benefit of companions, fellow journeyers on the path of awakening. And yet to contemplate, to see for us, what is it to really and truly be alone here? to ultimately not seek to rest upon anything. This is true solitude. Not resting upon experiences, not resting upon structures, not resting upon even the insights and endeavors of our past practice. But to be truly alone is to to encounter something that we could call indivisible. True aloneness ultimately encompasses everything. And to get to know, again to notice, to be curious, to see where we're kind of looking for something to lean on. Again, not to judge those tendencies, those patterns. We have them, we will. But to be interested to notice them, to not play them out unconsciously. Like we're trying to get to that place of calm, blissful expansiveness that we encountered yesterday or last year or we read about in a book once. And as we can see, there's that sense when we're holding some experience we're trying to get to, there's a kind of a leaning on it. Or when we've found some degree of spaciousness or calm, and there's just a subtle trying to keep hold of it. There's a way we're leaning on it. Imagining that this is what we can rely on. This is what will support us. This is what will hold us up. And yet ultimately nothing does. And yet the wakefulness, the inner capacity for, for seeing clearly, this we can rest upon. We can rest in, perhaps, rather than upon. And this quality of 
of solitude. The Buddha spoke of, he said, once in the discipline of living alone, it is the silence of solitude that is wisdom. When the solitude becomes a source of delight, then it shines in all the ten directions. Listen to the sound of water. Listen to the water running through chasms and rocks. It is the minor streams that make a great noise. The great waters flow silently. This is the sound of wisdom. And so allowing yourself to, to delight in the solitude. In this precious space in which we have the outer support we need. And we can explore what it means to rest on no thing. This is the fundamental letting go that liberates the heart and the mind. To rest on no thing, to make no thing as the basis for our existence. For our conclusion or completion. Fulfillment. And yet, while taking no thing as that basis, as that foundation to rest upon, being very, very fully right here, engaged with whatever is appearing. And seeing what's needed for you in terms of the deepening of the practice, the sustaining and the steadying of the heart in the process. For some of us sometimes we actually can recognize that tendency to push too hard and the deepening comes when we soften when we go a little more gently we allow ourselves to drop more fully in when we see the tendency to push and begin to release it for others we might notice the tendency to kind of cruise a little more and what's actually called for is to to just gently lean, we could say, a little more fully into what's possible for us. Now, after practicing now for a little while, it's probably the case we don't need as much sleep as we might have once thought we did. You know, classically, in this tradition, one would practice late into the evening and start early in the morning. Now sometimes we have health issues that preclude that and that's okay. That's fine to listen, be respectful to that. Sometimes we can recognize the, the value of having sufficient rest and that's appropriate. But sometimes we can also just be a little habitual, a little 
comfortable in our familiarity with how much sleep we think we need. And maybe it's okay to just explore what happens if we sit up a little later. I know for myself the thought will easily arise, oh, but what if I'm tired in the morning? It's like, actually it really doesn't matter what happens in the morning. If you're still awake in the evening, stay awake. Practice until there isn't the energy left for it. And see what happens. To not care whether you'll be tired the next day. To not worry about that. If you need to rest the next day, rest the next day. Sure. I always give myself permission if I'm sitting late into the night that I'll just get up when I wake up. If I have to sleep in the morning, it's fine. It's not often the case that it works out that way. That I need to. That we need to. But that, again, that subtle way we can limit ourselves because we're somehow trying to protect what's going to happen later to make sure it'll be comfortable tomorrow. And maybe we don't need to be quite so restrictive in that way. Or it might not be that that's where the useful edge is for us. It might be that we notice that we always have a cup of tea at the end of the sitting rather than going straight out to go walking. Or almost always, or every time at the end of the uh, 11 o'clock sitting, we always go and sit for, in a comfortable chair with a cup of tea for 10 minutes. And when we start to have habits and patterns like that, and we might feel it serves us, sometimes it really serves to say, no, today I'm just going to sit and walk and stand and practice, and I'm not going to do that. Not because it's bad or wrong or sometime, somehow unspiritual to have a cup of tea, but because we're starting to get into a groove and a habit. And there's something about just stepping out of that and saying, no, let's see what happens if I do it differently. Maybe sitting beyond the point where we think, oh, it's 45 minutes, that's enough. Not because doing more sitting makes us wiser, necessarily, or is better somehow, but because if there's some idea that's limiting us, that we're holding back, saying, oh, I really can't go beyond this initial weariness or moderate discomfort. Maybe we can. Maybe it's possible for us. So to take it as an exploration, to see what is possible. Maybe taking our practice into that last part of the day where, you know, it's so nice, isn't it, when we finally pull the covers up to our chin and think, oh, gosh, I don't have to practice. I can sleep, you know, when we're actually tired and ready to go. And yet what would it be to just bring our practice right into that last moment? Just a few phrases of loving kindness or... As one of my teachers would sometimes say, you know, see if you can notice whether you fall asleep on an in-breath or an out-breath. Such a wonderful instruction. To be a little careful because it does tend to keep one awake. But just that sense of, yeah, I could bring my practice into this place too. So notice the places we go unconscious. You know, AWOL, absent without leave. 
Now, maybe sitting on the toilet. We don't normally talk about this much, do we? Meditation instructions for sitting on the toilet. That kind of very fundamental human biological experience. We all do it. We very often don't talk about it. And yet to practice, to see, oh, so what's it like? Look what my body needs to do here. Look how it does it. What's it like to be really present? We might have associations of unpleasantness or shame, embarrassment, or just, oh, but can I be really present, sitting on the toilet, doing my business? Just those places where we're not, bringing them in, filling out, slowly filling out the day. So in the end there is nothing here that is not your practice. And so, in this way, we come closer to the essence of what is possible for us. All those shifts, all those movements require some letting go, some release of the habitual orientations and tendencies we have that are essentially to do with seeking comfort and security in so many different ways and so many different forms whether externally or internally seeking comfort and security and we know of course this is not what we're here for Most of us, at least some of us, some part of us knows that. Some other part of us maybe doesn't always remember. Which is why it's important to come back to this. Again and again. As the Buddha himself said, speaking of his teaching, but equally of our practice. He said, the reason for my teaching is not for merit or good deeds or good karma or concentration or rapture or bliss or even insight. None of these is the reason that I teach, but the sure heart's release. This and only this is the reason for the teaching of the Buddha. The sure heart's release. This is the reason for our practice. So give yourself to this, wholeheartedly, hold nothing back, be unconcerned about tomorrow. And see what is possible today.
the philosopher Spinoza said, all truly noble human endeavours are as rare as they are difficult. It is indeed a challenging undertaking, this practice. Rare that human beings will do this, take a period of time like this to practice. But noble, noble indeed. So let's sit quietly together. So may this practice we engage in here be for the liberation of our hearts and minds and for the welfare of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.